you came in this morning looking for the riveting conclusion to Pastor Jay's sermon series in Revelation, I'm sorry to disappoint. So we thought we'd give Jay a break <laughs> this week. It's a lot of time to spend in the book of Revelation, but he will be back next week if you're looking for that conclusion. I am. I'm looking forward to it. He's done such an excellent job. Uh, did any of you, did any of you growing up or maybe when you were raising your kids watch Sesame Street? Okay, good. A good percentage of you. I realize like Sesame Street's not really a thing with kids anymore. We have kids of our own. It's like YouTube. I don't even know if they know who Oscar the Grouch is or Big Bird is. But when I was a kid watching Sesame Street, they used to do this sketch. I don't know if you'd call it a sketch, like it's Saturday Night Live or something, but they used to do this sketch where um, they would put either several different puppets or maybe they're technically Muppets on the screen or several different objects on the screen. And they had this little ditty, this song that went, maybe some of you recognize it, you know, one of these things are not like the other. One of these things are... Doesn't belong or not the same, right? Sorry, Jay. <laughs> one of these things are not the same. Anybody remember that sketch? Okay. So again, what they would do is they put several objects up on the screen, two or three of them that were identical and one that had something different about it. And as I remember, even in my youngest days of childhood, it was pretty easy to recognize the thing that was different, right? If you've ever taken the time to read through the four Gospels of the New Testament, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, and you played the one of these things are not like the other game, it's pretty obvious which Gospel stands out, and that's the Gospel of John. And maybe you've wondered, when you've read John's Gospel before, especially like we spent the last year or so in the Gospel of Luke, and maybe you ended the Gospel of Luke reading at home, you're like, well, let's just jump to the next chapter in this story. And you started reading the Gospel of John, and you were like, what? This seems so different. If you felt that way, I'm here to tell you it's not just you. It is a very different Gospel. In fact, more than 90% of the material in John's Gospel has no parallel with any of the three other Gospels. Those ones are commonly called the Synoptic Gospels. Even what few stories that we have in John's Gospel that we also find in the Synoptic Gospels are told from a slightly different point of view. So here's a few things you might not be aware of, but maybe as you've read John's Gospel before, you kind of like implicitly picked up some of the stuff. First of all, there's no parables. Jesus doesn't tell any parables in John's gospel. It's kind of weird, right? There's no casting out of demons. Like, that seems like a pretty core part of Jesus' ministry in the synoptic gospels. There's no eating with sinners. Jesus actually says nothing or next to nothing directly in John's gospel about the kingdom of God. The word repentance isn't used one time in the gospel of John. Jesus says almost nothing directly about loving your neighbor, giving up your possessions, no calling people to carry their cross. In the place of ethical lectures like the Sermon on the Mount or maybe these short parables about the kingdom of God you find in the Synoptic Gospels, in John's Gospel, you have Jesus giving like these long philosophical discourses. We actually have no stories about Jesus' birth in John's Gospel. No baptism story, no temptation in the wilderness, no transfiguration, no words about helping the poor. No exhortations to love your enemy. It's enough to make you wonder, what's going on with this gospel? Why is it so different? 
Some people even wondered, why do we have it in our Bibles and not just the other three? They seem like perfectly good pictures of Jesus' life and his ministry and what he came for. And more practically to you, you maybe have this question sometimes as you read John's gospel, why do I read this? Why should I read this? I think it's important that we get to know the portrait that's painted of Jesus in John's gospel. So first of all, we need to ask the question, well, who painted this specific portrait of Jesus? And it's helpful to think of the gospels as four portraits, right? There are four portraits of Jesus, four different painters. They're all inspired paintings, but they're all artists who have their own slightly different artistic expression. So who painted this portrait that we call the gospel of John? The author never gives their name because all of the available evidence that we have seems to point to this John the Beloved, one of Jesus' closest disciples and possibly even Jesus' best friend, being the one to transmit this account, we've called it, ever since the very first century and second century of church history, Christians have called it John's Gospel. So we hold from church tradition and church history that John wrote this account, along with more than likely some of his disciples, some of his protégés, who helped him actually write the scroll. There's evidence that he had some help with this, working on it. And we know that this gospel was likely composed somewhere around the year 90 AD, which means you're kind of in Christianity the next generation, all right? As a kid growing up, um, my dad loved Star Trek, the original series. And then when I got a little bit older, still as a kid, there was Star Trek the next generation. Anybody, any Trekkies in here? Okay, we'll talk after service. The rest of you, I'm sorry. (laughs) So this is kind of like Christianity, the next generation. Most of Jesus's first disciples, in fact, all of them save for John, have probably died already. In fact, John was the only disciple to have likely died simply of old age. Like, Peter was martyred 30 years before this book even came out, to give you some context. So... Knowing that, I think, hopefully helps you understand why some of the things we most commonly think about in Jesus' ministry, the casting out of demons, the command to love your enemies, isn't part of the picture John chooses to paint. Because at this point, Christians throughout the Roman world already knew those particular stories. They didn't need them all told to them again. But what this next generation of Christians had to deal with was an entirely new set of questions and challenges and actually competing pictures of who Jesus was. And these competing pictures were deceiving a lot of people. So perhaps more so than in the first generation of people, the second generation of the church had some like deeper questions about who or what this Jesus of Nazareth was and is. You had controversies with various Jewish groups. We became familiar with some of these when we were going through the book of Acts, right? And these only got worse in the second generation. Some of these Jewish groups were saying, hey, you know this Jesus, he was a wise man, pretty solid rabbi. Some of them thought he was just a charlatan. But either way, he's just a man. And what you're gonna have to do to be righteous is that you're going to need to keep taking on the cultural practices of the Jewish people recorded in the Torah. That's your only way to righteousness. So this, this was a pretty powerful counter-message that was deceiving a lot of people. And we know this, again, from our series in the book of Acts, but it got a lot worse in the second generation. 
Along with that, you had another competing picture of Jesus that was starting to develop. You know, Jesus hasn't returned yet, and people are kind of getting concerned about this. All the apostles are dying out. What's going on, Jesus? And so you had this new kind of counter story developing that we call Gnosticism. And Gnostic forms of Christianity were developing, and they were teaching people that there was a wicked demigod who had created the physical world, and that all of the material world was evil and broken, and that even Jesus himself didn't have a material body. They were teaching people Jesus was kind of just like a spiritual manifestation, and what he had to bring was like a secret message a secret message of salvation, that if you found and got the secret message from Jesus, you would escape the physical world of pain and suffering and misery. So I imagine John, towards the end of his life, he's like Jesus' best friend, and he's hearing these stories going around, and he's going, oh my gosh, you guys are getting this all wrong. Where are you getting these ideas from? I know this Jesus. He was my best friend. In fact, John was the only disciple to be present at the cross during Jesus' crucifixion. I gotta set these people straight. That's what I imagine John's thinking to himself. John explicitly states his purpose for his gospel at the end of, towards the end of John's gospel in John 20, verse 30 through 31. I'm gonna have it up on the screen It might be difficult to track as we're going to do some jumping around in your Bibles today. So you don't have to flip there now. In fact, if anywhere, you could flip to the beginning of John's gospel. But I'll have this passage on the screen. This is his inspired purpose that he explicitly states. Now, Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book. But these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. So in John's gospel, we can see him telling this story of Jesus in a way that helps the reader understand several key questions. Questions that aren't just important to like the second generation of the church, but they're still important to us today. And our goal this morning is to go through John's gospel and see how John's gospel helps to answer these questions. So we got four questions here. We're going to try to tackle in John's gospel today. The first one is this. What is the true nature and identity of Jesus? Because there were good questions about that, and there still are. The second question, what is the true purpose of Jesus' ministry? Because there was a lot of competing claims about that, and there still is. Number three, how does Jesus accomplish this mission? And four, what does this mean for us. So let's start with the first question. How does John's gospel answer this first question of what is the true nature and identity of Jesus? And for this, we have two answers that are actually overlapping. They're intertwined together, but we could say there are two answers here. The first thing John reveals in a very unique way is that Jesus is what God has to say. And the Greek word here that we're going to talk about is the Greek word logos. He is the logos. Secondly, John tells us Jesus is God in the flesh. He is the incarnate Son of God. We have this picture so explicitly clear in John's gospel in a way that the other gospels do not make as explicit. It's still there, but John makes it really explicit. 
I love actually how John decides to start his portrait of Jesus. You know, Matthew's gospel, how does Matthew start his, his story? A genealogy, right? Like, here's the genealogies leading up to the birth of Christ. Mark just goes, hey, I'm going to start with Jesus' ministry. So he starts with the precursor ministry of John the Baptist. That seems like a good place to start. Luke does the genealogy thing again. He's like, I'm going to give you the genealogy. And in fact, Luke's gospel gives you like the nativity story, right? And the Christmas stories that we always read come the holidays. John, I love John. He like one-ups them all. He goes, hey, you know, nice backstory you guys got there, but I'm going to one-up you all. I'm going to take it all the way back to the beginning of reality, (laughs) and I'm going to connect quite literally everything that exists to Jesus. I'm a philosophy guy. I studied, like, philosophical theology, and I love John's move here. He's like, yeah, nativity story, that's cute and all. Let's connect it to the beginning of everything. So let's open up to John chapter 1. And we're going to look at verses 1 through 4, right at the beginning of John's gospel. John chapter 1, verses 1 through 4. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. Through him, all things were made. Without him... Nothing was made that has been made. In him was life, and that life was the light of all mankind. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. Now, growing up, we always called the Bible the Word of God. So I remember when I was a kid thinking this passage meant something like, in the beginning was the Bible, and the Bible was with God, and the Bible was God. (laughs) But that's really a big misunderstanding That's not what John is saying here at all. John is talking about something much more cosmic. In philosophy, we could say much more ontological. And that's, here's your fancy term for the day. All that means is when you're trying to understand the very nature of reality, you're doing ontology. John's doing ontology and theology together in a way that has profound implications for both the Jewish readers and the Greco-Roman Gentiles that are also reading his gospel. By synthesizing two very important ideas from both of their worldviews and then pointing them to Christ. Let's start with the Jewish reader, for example. So the Jewish reader that's reading John's gospel, and he's, he's seeing this in the beginning. He's going, or she is going, oh, in the beginning. Oh, I know what he's doing here. Where else in the Bible does a book start off with in the beginning? Genesis, right? You're gonna, you picked up on that because many of you have gone to Sunday school and you've been in church for quite some time, and they would have picked it up right away. Oh, he's making a connection to the grand cosmic theological story of creation found in Genesis 1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Now the earth was formless and empty. Darkness was over the surface of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the waters. And God said... Let there be light, and there was light. God's first step in ordering the material universe and bringing it into being was to speak, to communicate. And what we could say by analogy, because all we have are analogies when we start talking about this stuff, is that God used words and emanating, dare I even say exploding into being, 
was light. So the connection John is making in his introduction is profound because as he makes clear by verse 14, when he writes this, you can just jump down or scroll down to verse 14, the word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. We have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only son who came from the father full of grace and truth. So John makes it clear, the word that he's talking about becomes flesh. He's talking about Jesus, the Son of God, the pre-incarnate Christ, the only one and only Son, the Logos, that the entire cosmos was brought into being through, came in flesh and blood. Wow. So we're not just talking about a wise, miracle-working rabbi here when we're talking about Jesus. Yes, Jesus of Nazareth, we want to be clear, he was born at a specific moment in history, in flesh and blood. John's not saying that a first century Jewish rabbi made of flesh and blood always existed. We affirm the doctrine of the incarnation, born of a virgin Mary. This is what we celebrate on Christmas. John is saying, though, that the creative, sustaining, inseparable from God, word of God became incarnate in flesh and blood in Jesus of Nazareth. And he is the light that illumines all of creation. So not just a wise, miracle-working rabbi. We're talking about something cosmic, something mind-blowing. Now, as mind-blowing as this is for the Jewish reader, interestingly enough, it would have been just as a profound statement for a Gentile who's living in that Greco-Roman worldview of the first century. You see, the Greek word John uses for word capital W, is a term that's got quite a bit of history in the Greek philosophy of that ancient Gentile world. The word here is logos, L-O-G-O-S, and that John connects this logos to being Jesus, the Jewish Messiah, is revolutionary. I know we, most of us, especially even going through the book of Acts before this series, are well aware of like the pagan cults of that ancient first century Roman world. But it would be a misunderstanding to think that every Gentile in the Greco-Roman world were like polytheists and were part of these pagan cults. You had a rich history of philosophy in the Greco-Roman world with Stoics and Plato and Aristotle, and they all believed that there could logically only be one ultimate God They called it the one or the source of all reality itself. So even among the Greek world, there was a sort of monotheism that the philosophers had been reaching at and grasping for. The one to the Stoics and to Plato and to Aristotle was the necessary creator. The one was omnipotent, unchangeable. They believed the one was unaffectable and omnipresent and it was pure perfection. In some sense, the one was so perfect, so infinite, that it was beyond knowing. 
It was so beyond our categorization that we need some sort of mediator to be able to even understand the one. See, the Greeks were sorting through this. Even without the Torah, without the Old Testament, God, I think, was trying to work in their culture to reveal something to them, and they were grasping at it. And it was maybe an imperfect picture, but they were onto some things. They're like, this infinite, un, I mean, beyond categories of knowing, in order to know God, there's got to be some mediator to know God. And this is what they meant when they talked about the logos. The logos is what made reason and intelligibility possible. So when the Greeks looked around like, how's the world reasonable? How come math works and science works? They're like, there has to be some bedrock ground of reason and intelligibility and they called it the Logos, interestingly enough. Plato thought the one was at the center of everything, and as you moved away from the center, you had greater and greater degrees of imperfection. So if we, being far away from the one, material beings, were ever going to know the one, there would have to be some way of mediating that. In fact, there was even a first century Jewish philosopher named Philo of Alexandria, who was trying to merge some of these Jewish Old Testament ideas and Greek uh, philosophy together. And check out what he had to say. Now, we don't know whether or not John knew who Philo was. They're writing around the same time. But Philo thought it was the concept of this logos, which he specifically called the firstborn of God that bridged the gap between the holy creator God and the material world. This is what uh, this is what Philo of Alexandria wrote sometime in the first century, so I'm just showing you guys how this is a really important idea John's grabbing onto. This is what he wrote in the first century. The logos of the living God is the bond of everything, holding all things together and binding all the parts, and prevents them from being dissolved and separated. So this is a term that's loaded with meaning, whether you are a Jew or a Greek, Roman, Gentile. And John's drawing on this depth of meaning to say two things. Jesus is more than a wise rabbi. And yet, to those Gnostics that are saying he's just spiritual and the world is evil and broken, he's correcting them by saying, no, it is through Jesus the word that God's good world and creation came to be. And it's not through some like secret spiritual knowledge that Jesus discloses his salvation to you. So John is correcting both of these things. So he, again, is what God has to say, and he is God in the flesh. This brings us to our second question John tries to answer, or does answer, in his portrait of Jesus. What is the true purpose of Jesus' mission? Now think back to the very first verse most of you memorized. John 3.16, right? Here's the summary of Jesus' mission. It's wonderful, it's succinct. John 3:16, "For God so loved the world that He gave His one and only Son, that whoever believes in Him shall not perish but have eternal life." Beautiful, right? Succinct summary of it. I think we should make it a habit to add on to that early scripture memorization, verse 17. Verse 17 says this to continue on with the thought. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, 
but to save the world through him. Remember, the Gnostics are like, this world is trash, it's terrible, it's deformed. God's, Jesus's goal is to take us out of the world, to take us out of this broken place. John's gospel is like, no, it's to save the world, not to condemn it. John spends much of the first 12 to 13 chapters of his gospel highlighting the signs Jesus performed to show that he is what God has to say and he's God in the flesh. But that's not the only purpose of these signs that Jesus performs. These signs are windows into the very purpose of Jesus' ministry. In fact, some scholars even call John's gospel like a two-volume work with the first book of John's gospel being the book of signs. So if you read John, just after this introduction that we read, verses, chapter one, verses 19 through chapter 12 through 50, you'd notice that the word signs is used 16 times in this section. And then it doesn't get used again until almost the very end of John's gospel. So let's look at some of these signs. The first one Jesus does, Recorded in chapter 2, Jesus' first sign, his miracle, is livening up a wedding party (laughs) by turning approximately 150 gallons of water into 150 gallons of wine. That's quite the party. And apparently it wasn't the cheap box stuff either because the head of the banquet, after having a few drinks of it, pulls the groom aside and he goes, hey, I'm paraphrasing here. He goes, wow, buddy, you really went over the top here with this wedding because most people, you know, they, w- they start throwing out the cheap stuff at the end after people have already had a few glasses of wine. But you saved the best wine for last. John says that this is the first sign through which he, referring to Jesus, revealed his glory. Now, I want you to remember that word glory because it's going to become really important later in John's gospel. But here's the list. We won't go through all of them. You can see up on the screen and those watching online, you can see the list of the seven signs in the book of signs. Jesus turning water into wine. Jesus heals. Jesus heals. Jesus feeds. Jesus walks on water. Jesus heals. And then the last sign is Jesus raising Lazarus from the dead. Notice how none of these signs are about escaping our daily lived material world of flesh and blood. It's about redeeming, saving, healing. This brings us to answer the the, the second question of what is the true purpose of Jesus's ministry? Jesus is the manifest demonstration of God's love for the entire world, sent into the world, to save, redeem, and restore it. Not about escape. (laughs) We'll come back to this at the end. It's not about getting beamed up, to use a Star Trek (laughs) phrase again. It's about saving, redeeming, restoring where we are. How does Jesus accomplish this mission? That's the next question, though. So how does Jesus accomplish his mission to save, redeem, and restore creation. John's gospel shows us quite the picture, that Jesus accomplishes his mission through the glory of the cross. John frequently, in John's gospel, Jesus is frequently calling his work, his upcoming work on the cross, his moment in which he's going to be glorified. You can see that in 
John 7, verse 39, 12 and 16, verses 23, 24, 13, 1 and 17, 1. You can see Jesus talk about the cross this way. In fact, just as I talked about how the first half of John's book, some people call the book of signs, the second half of the book is called the book of glory. Because that second half of the book focuses on the final week of Jesus' life leading to the cross and the resurrection. Now, this is such a weird thing to say, that the cross is a moment of glory. We know from the writings of the Apostle Paul that very few people in that ancient first century world would looked at the cross and considered it glory. Think about what Paul writes, the church in Corinth, in that first generation. This is what Paul had to say, writing to Corinth. We preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and foolishness to Gentiles. The cross, guys, I know we have all this imagery that we connect right now with it being really, really sacred, but that's not how people thought of the cross in the first century. The cross was the hangman's gallow. It was the guillotine, the electric chair, the firing squad. It was a vicious and disgusting demise for criminals and your average lowlifes. No one, absolutely no one, would have thought of this as glorious. And yet John tells us that Jesus considers it his moment of glory. I mean, what an absolutely mind-blowing idea. Think of this and connect it back to the very beginning of John's gospel. The logos, the very word God spoke to bring all things into existence, that which makes anything in reality intelligible at all, the very reason of the universe is most glorified in a gruesome death on a cross. So as mind-blowing as that is, as paradoxical it is, you might still have the question like, all right, that's great. How does it actually accomplish Jesus' mission? How does this thing work? And that's a really good question. Unique to John's gospel is this claim, and we don't see this explicitly laid out in the other gospels. Unique to John's gospel is the claim that the cross is not only the moment of glorification of Jesus, but Jesus explicitly says that it's also an act of judgment on Satan. Look at John 12, 31. John 12, 31. <clears throat> now is the time for judgment on this world. Now the prince of this world will be driven out. And I, when I'm lifted up from the earth, will draw all people to myself. He said this to show the kind of death he was going to die. God is good. He made the world good. But there's no doubt about the evil and brokenness that we experience in our world. Instead, though, of this Gnostic, ancient Gnostic idea that there was some wicked demigod that made the world, John says, no, the world is made by and through Christ, but there has been a wicked prince or ruler that has upended the right ordering of God's good plan. And this is Satan. Now, this is like a massive oversimplification here, but maybe a helpful analogy. Picture God telling his children 
don't take candy from strangers. We've all probably, as parents, have told our kids something along those lines, right? Don't take candy from strangers, but instead of your children listening, let's imagine the children do not listen and are kidnapped. Sure, the kids did something wrong, but when righteous judgment comes, is it coming for the kids or is it coming for the kidnapper first? Think of this as an analogy of the fall, right? We certainly have our role to play in the fall. We've been given the right way to live in the world. Don't take candy from that satanic stranger. But all have sinned and fallen short. But where is the judgment coming primarily? Jesus' own words say it's coming for Satan first. Judgment is coming through the cross and the resurrection on the prince of this fallen world. Early Christians even held to this view that between Good Friday and Easter Sunday, that Jesus descended into Hades as a liberator for all those who were oppressed by the wicked rule of Satan. We even, you know, if you grew up saying the Apostles' Creed, it's in the Apostles' Creed, he descended into Hades, right? Because Christians believed, oh, this was... This moment of glory was because Jesus was descending into Hades as a liberator to defeat the kingdoms of darkness. So what does this mean for us? This is our final question. What does this mean for us? Through Jesus' death and resurrection, those who are united to Christ, like branches united to a vine, we get that concept from John 15, are saved but we're saved both from something and to something. And if we don't get both, we don't get the totality of the gospel. A lot of times we might focus on the saved from thing. And there's a lot of horrific versions that could scare lots of people about what you are saved from. If we don't get the saved from and the saved to together, we're not getting the whole picture. We are saved from, in John's gospel, the port paint. The portrait is painted like this. We are saved from the destructive oppression of Satan. We're no longer slaves to the destructive oppression of Satan, and we are saved to what? We are saved to permanent, loving union with God. Not only does John's gospel paint a vivid, vivid picture of what we're saved from, it also shows us what we're saved to. Now, most of us, if we go back to that first verse we memorized as kids, John 3, 16, and we think about the question, well, what does Jesus save us to? And we think about John 3, 16. Most of us would say, well, it says in John 3, 16, we're saved to eternal life. But then the follow-up question, what do you picture when you picture eternal life? Maybe you come up with pictures of like disembodied spiritual afterlife. Maybe angels on clouds playing harps, pearly gates, etc. Um, we'll talk a little bit more about this, but that picture is actually a little bit more Gnostic than it is the gospel good news that we see in John's gospel. In John's gospel, Jesus gives an explicit definition of eternal life, so we don't have to wonder what eternal life means. Let's look at John chapter 17. Here's the explicit definition Jesus gives of what eternal life means. John 17, verse 3. 
Now this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. That's eternal life. This isn't the kind of knowing, like knowing like a propositional fact. Like a propositional fact is cat, like cats are mammals. You can know that, right? But even Jesus said like the demons know propositions about Jesus. It's not the knowing John is talking about here, not propositional facts, but this is more what we would call participatory knowing. In fact, the Greek word for know here, it has connotations of the kind of knowing that happens in marital union, something we might frequently see in the Old Testament, right? And Adam knew his wife Eve. I won't fill in all the blanks because we have multiple age audiences here. Now, we don't have to jump into thinking about this like purely in some sort of erotic sense. The point Jesus is getting at is that the goal of salvation is a very deep, very real union with God. In fact, as Jesus says later in this chapter, as part of the high priestly prayer, his desire is that we all would be one together with God just as the Son and the Father are one. What kind of union was that? An eternal, permanent, loving union. We could say it like this. The goal of salvation is this. Sharing in the eternal communion of love that the Father and Son have shared for, shared in for all eternity. We can see that in Jesus' high priestly prayer in John 17. And if you jump down to verse 20 through 24, this is the good news. The good news that John's gospel highlights is that eternal life begins now and it continues permanently. So if you die before Christ's final setting right of the world, you know what? You still have union with God. And just like Lazarus one day, Jesus is going to say, rise, and we get to rise up out of the grave, not to some disembodied platonic paradise, but to the world that we worked so hard and labored in to bring redemption and renewal to. And this is the final point of application I want to leave you with. John's gospel corrects some of our secret Gnosticism. And there is some Gnosticism that has crept into the life of the church and evangelical churches. I remember years ago teaching a class with teenagers. They were high school or middle school students, and they had all grown up in evangelical church context. And sometimes, as I like to do, I ask them, what do you guys think the point of life is? That's just what a teenager wants to think about at 8 in the morning or whatever the class was. And one kid had the audacity or boldness to raise their hand, and they said, well, I think the point of life is to spread the good news and to save as many people as possible. I said, hey, that's a fairly solid evangelical kid answer. So then I had to really be a jerk about it and ask a follow-up question to this poor kid who had the guts to raise his hand. So what does that mean to be saved? Why are we trying to, what are we saving the world from? Well, they went on to explain, well, okay, the point of salvation is so that we would, when we died, we would go to heaven. And I asked this, the rest of the students, I was like, okay, is you guys in general agreement? Yeah, we're in general agreement. So let me get this straight. The point of all of life is to get as many people as we can 
to go to heaven. And they were like, yeah, that's it. So then my question was, well, why didn't God just make us in heaven? They couldn't see the very purpose of this flesh and blood material world that we live in, these hard wooden pews that we sit in, the people that we embrace, the work that we do in the world, because there had been some Gnosticism that had crept into our evangelical theology that made the point of all salvation like, I can't wait to get up out of here. Whether it's when I die or some sort of rapture, I can't wait to escape The message isn't escape, church. The message is redemption and renewal and setting right. And we get to enjoy a union with God in Christ that is unlike any love. Well, actually, I should say unlike. It's better than any love we've experienced. Any glimpse of God's love we've tasted in marriage or in relationship with family God's love is infinitely more than that, and we get to be in perfect, permanent union with God in that kind of love. So let's pray. I'm going to invite the worship team to come up and to, uh, actually, I'm going to go ahead and invite you to stand right now, and we're going to sing together a song that helps remind us of this good news. But I'm going to pray as the worship team comes up. Father, help us to see that what you've invited us into is beyond our wildest dreams. And as we gather together as your church, your spirit is the down payment of what we get to experience forever. But you've brought us here and you've made us here and now to give us a glimpse and to allow us to taste of your goodness and your love in the here and now. And so unite us together Unite us with you in Christ and by your grace and by the power of your spirit to get a glimpse, to get a taste of that love in the here and now, and may we continue on with it for eternity. In your name, amen.